Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. In moments, the historian Alejandro Velasco will sort fact from fiction about what's been going on in Venezuela. And at the bottom of the hour, the political scientist Jessica Blatt reveals the origins of her discipline in racism and xenophobia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. First, Venezuela. Every day we hear of some horror afflicting that country, be it food shortages or political violence. Mainstream sources quickly convert this news into sermons on the failure of socialism and the wisdom of the capitalist way. What's been going on and why? To answer that question, I asked Alejandro Velasco, Associate Professor of Modern Latin America at NYU and editor of NACLA's report on the Americas. One reads an awful lot of dire things coming into Venezuela in the mainstream media. Uh, the mainstream media has never been very friendly uh, towards uh, the Chavez revolution. But how much of this is true? Uh, are, is there rampant poverty and, and shortages of basic goods and, and uh, political chaos? What's really going on in the ground? It is true. And to some extent, some of the reports are falling short. I think what the reports are failing to capture in terms of the increase in poverty in terms of the increasing numbers of Venezuelans of all social sectors leaving Venezuela, whereas before is primarily, you know, middle and upper classes. Now it includes um, popular sectors where, you know, going across the border to Colombia and to Brazil. What the reporting is missing is a sense of the longer kind of structural causes that are leading to this moment. And so instead, it's sort of all being branded as a failure of socialism in a kind of very easy narrative that fits into what the pre, you know, prior narratives about chaos in Venezuela have been, which is that, you know, the Chavez government and since the Maduro government um, have really just been, you know, socialist disasters. And so to the extent that the that the coverage has both captured, you know, the enormity of a crisis, but then mistaken to my mind what the causes, um, what the causes are, um, I think that it's fallen to this easy narrative where you have to choose between accepting the gravity, but not accepting the, you know, the underlying narrative. Okay, so let's uh, sort out some of those reasons. Like many on the American left, I was very enthusiastic about Chavez when he first took power. And for, I don't know, the first 10 years of his, his government, I was not uh, deeply informed about what was going on in Venezuela, but I was highly sympathetic. How do you evaluate the achievements of, of the Chavez years before we get to the present? Two things are true. I think that it's super important, especially at this time where we're like looking back um, at, at the longer processes of the Chavez government, to identify two stages. Um, and the first stage basically goes from about 1998, when he's first elected, to around 2004. And I'll tell you why in a moment. And these were the years you saw the coup in 2002. You saw an oil industry um, lockout by um, by management in 2002-2003. You saw a series of street protests known as Guarimbas in 2003. Then you saw a recall referendum that Chavez won handily in 2004. When uh, these were years that have that uh, all these uh, tensions and, and conflicts were happening before the explosion of oil prices, what that basically meant what that was that uh, these were years of tremendous amounts of uh, innovation and excitement at the grassroots level to create um, a, a sense of uh, popular sectors as having a place in the political imagination in Venezuela uh, from which they'd long been excluded. Uh, you know, so before the rise of oil prices, you had this tremendous amount of effervescence, and that was expressed in tremendous amounts of po uh, political support. But again, it had very little to do with clientelism. It had little to do with, um, you know, the distribution of rents, etc. And it had a lot to do with just reimagining the possibilities of what democracy could be beyond a kind of neoliberal or even a liberal vision of democracy. Let's pause there a moment. How much uh, in the way of uh, improvement in popular uh, living standards was there? Were there, were there re real material gains? 
not much in that earlier period, which is what's sort of fascinating, right? People were coming to the streets in support of Chavez and Chavismo without actually seeing a significant material gain. What they were seeing was a tremendous amount of valorization of their daily lives, valorization of their existence, valorization of their position as popular sectors that had a tremendous amount to give to the nation, um, even though they'd been cast out, right? So all of this excitement and enthusiasm at the grassroots was happening without the kind of tremendous uh, improvements in people's lives that, um, that you would otherwise later associate with, with Chavismo. Of course, what that also bred on the flip side was a tremendous amount of angst and anxiety, which on the part of um, elite sectors and upper middle class sectors who saw their own sort of privileges being cast out during a period and who really responded in these anti-democratic extra-institutional ways to reassert power over who actually gets to control what democracy means and who's going to be leading it in Venezuela, right? And so it is always happening before, again, um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, significant improvements in the daily lives of people. Okay, and then we have the explosion in oil prices in the mid-2000s. How did that change things? Well, that changed things dramatically in two ways. Number one, it allowed um, Chavismo to take what had originally been these battles over who controls access to oil and its distribution and the, the rents and their distribution and how and to turn them into something concrete, right? So after um, Chavez and Chavismo um, were able to uh, to get control over the oil industry, um, the national oil company PDVSA, and be, uh, once oil prices began to rise, then that's when you started to see tremendous um, distribution of those rents that improved people's lives. Well, not immeasurably, actually very measurably. Poverty rates were slashed, extreme poverty uh, rates were almost completely diminished, you know, literacy rates dropped almost zero, um, food security rose, I mean, um, by some estimates between 2000 and 2012, caloric intake rose um, by 1,000 calories per person, uh, access to education, everything was sort of uh, improving, but it was all being done uh, by redistributing rents, not in the productive um, sector of the economy, not in sort of the industrial sectors of the economy, but basically through cash, rather direct, or, uh, either direct or indirect um, transfers. But of course, what that also created was much more verticalism than had been the case in that prior period, where people were mobilizing not because they supported a kind of program that distributed rents, but rather the idea of a more participatory system of government. And then the, in, uh, the introduction of these, these high amounts, high quantities of cash that verticalized the system that um, had been you know, uh, significantly uh, horizontal before. Oil-rich societies are famous for creating a rather small parasitical ruling class and a mass amount of poverty, lots and lots of corruption. Uh, how well does Venezuela fit that textbook model? Well, it fits it very well. The real problem with Venezuela, um, and I've written about this, is that what you have is basically the worst of two worlds, um, two sort of dynamics, half applied in each case. So you have the worst of a very ill-applied um, socialist program after 2004, 2005, when Chavez first begins to talk about socialism. And what I mean by that is that you know, we might think of, of Chavez and Chavez as sort of a socialist firebrand and the socialist movement, um, but in fact, very few nationalizations of strategic industries happened under his um, his presidency, even when um, he controlled you know the National Assembly after the opposition boycotted in 2005. Banking, uh, telecommunications, construction, most of those industries actually remained in private um, sector hands. So there was very little like nationalization that was going on. And then the other dynamic, which was um, half applied, was um, the petrostates or the, the, the resource curse dynamic insofar as 
even though there was a tremendous amount of wealth going on, most of that was not going actually towards the industrial um, sector to, to generate uh, less dependency on rents by creating domestic uh, productive apparatuses. Instead, it was going to fund regional here, I mean, Latin American integration, which would allow a kind of, you know, through ALBA and other kinds of mechanisms, um, a kind of competitive advantage system where each nation would have something to give to the pie. And, and Venezuela's, uh, what, what it had to contribute was oil or the rents of oil, right? And it would get sort of productive goods from, from other sectors, from Argentina, from, from Bolivia, from Nicaragua, etc. You know, you don't have to have a PhD in economics to realize that once oil prices come down, that model is going to uh, become unsustainable very quick. What you mentioned reminds me uh, of the whole pink tide moment in Latin America of several years ago. How much cross-national cooperation was there among the pink tide participants? Tremendous, tremendous. And it was expressed both ideologically uh, as well as, um, uh, as practically. Um, you know, you had one government after another um, in the region electing to some uh, degree or other um, candidates for president um, who at least, at the very least, rejected what had been a, a Washington consensus uh, uh, program of the previous 20 years, where, of course, you had to privatize, you had to um, you know, reduce um, the state's role in the economy, you had to reduce social spending, and instead they you know, engaged in a significant amount of, uh, of, of return to um, to, to strong sort of statism in the favor in favor of social justice missions, but of course they were able to do that because there was a significant commodities boom at the time, so they had money to be able to fund these initiatives. But what's interesting about that moment is that there were these very significant, um, you know, cross-regional, inter-intra-Latin uh, American um, relationships established, sometimes through trade partnerships, sometimes through political partnerships that created a sense of cohesion among um, what had really otherwise been uh, a very fractious, con fractious continent. And at the time, it seemed uh, the U.S. was so obsessed with the Middle East, it didn't really pay much attention to what was going on in Latin America. Is that true? That is true. And in fact, uh, not only did it not pay attention, but uh, again and again, Latin America seemed to outmaneuver Washington and the, the Bush administration first, and then later um, Obama. Uh, you know, the, the example that I always like to talk about is 2005, which was supposed to be the banner year for the launching of the FTAA, the Free Trade Area of the Americas, which was you know NAFTA on steroids. And in uh, you know the summit of the Americas was supposed to be the the crowning achievement of that of that era of neoliberalism that was launched in the in the late 80s 1990s, and instead what happened is that um, FDA died and it died uh, because it wasn't just that Chavez as sort of a, a, one of the the most prominent figures of this this left turn of this pink tide you know railed against it in in some vitriolic speeches it was because countries like Brazil who were now beginning to you know shift their weight around were demanding things from Washington, like, for instance, the um, eradication of, uh, of agricultural subsidies to, the, to, you know, to Midwest um, agribusiness. Um, and the United States refused to do so, right? And they, they basically called the spade a spade and said, well, you actually then don't believe in the things that you espouse, and so we're ending this. Um, and so, again, it, it wasn't just a moment where uh, uh, the United States wasn't paying attention. Even when it paid attention, the region was unwilling to, to hear what it had to peddle. I'm speaking with Alejandro Velasco, who teaches Latin American history at NYU. Okay, now back to Venezuela. Oil prices collapsed uh, with the financial crisis. What then happened in Venezuela? 
Venezuela was caught um, in a very problematic position where not only did it have a tremendous amount of debts that it had incurred, and this is a standard kind of petrostate model where even when you have huge amounts of revenue coming in with um, with oil uh, surpluses, because of those oil surpluses, you have very easy access to even more cash through through credits that you know nations or other um, institutions want to give you. And so Venezuela was not just you know, swimming in oil money, but it was swimming in the the credits provided by swimming in oil money. And so when oil prices dramatically dropped beginning in 2014, it was left with a huge amount of debt that it had to pay. And so that was one of the problems. But the second problem was because it hadn't invested in the nationalization of industry or even in additional sort of in productive sectors of the economy, but it was instead relying more and more on imports that it was getting from, again, sort of other Latin American countries as a way of generating this collaborative enterprise, it now could no longer afford to do both things simultaneously, pay off its debts and also pay imports. The other dynamic that people don't often discuss is that to some extent Venezuela and Chavismo was the victim of its own successes in those earlier years in terms of um, increases in the standards of living of vast sectors of the population who of course now had and want had you know, more demands and ha- had more needs and more wants that couldn't be satisfied at the levels that had been um, generated because of Venezuela being able to satisfy imports at, at those levels. And so what you found is sort of a, a dramatic rise in expectations with none of the cash able to uh, either do imports or uh, pay off debts. And so what the Maduro government did is for several years, it prioritized paying of debts over the satisfaction of those necessities, especially of popular sectors of the, of the population. I presume they did so because they were worried about rolling over those debts? Exactly, um, and to losing, you know, losing out additional credit um, opportunities, right? Which is why, you know, we talk about, or, you know, th- there has been talk about various sanctions that the United States and other countries in Europe and um, and others have imposed upon Venezuela, and most of the discussion has been at the level of uh, individuals in the Maduro government being sanctioned for human rights violations, etc. But the actual very impactful sanctions that um, have had the most effect uh, on Venezuela have been sanctions against cr- uh, lending and against trading um, of Venezuelan goods and currency, um, which have been on the books now for almost a couple of years. Those completely hamstrung Venezuela's ability to raise new cash in order to finance um, some of these immediate needs of the population and have, has found Venezuela going closer into the orbit of, of Russia, of China, um, and of other such nations in order to be able to raise cash. And when those have begun to dry up, then it's tried to concoct uh, you know, new schemes like this cryptocurrency, the Petro, which it launched um, earlier this year. Right? But these are all efforts to try to move around the restrictions that have been imposed on the um, financial, basically a financial boycott. Why did the Chavez government not do more to diversify away from oil? That's a $64,000 question or $64 trillion question, whatever you want to call it, in terms of the amount of money that came in. It's hard to say, and um, I don't think anybody has a, quite an explanation for it. I think in part, um, it has to do with what Chavez, in part based on the experience that he had in that first era, that, that first period that I talked about between 1998 and 2004, when you know the most recalcitrant sectors of, of elites and, and the opposition really broached, any, broached no kind of negotiation. 
instead, I think what Chavez found um, when oil prices rose was the ability to basically have his cake and eat it too, where instead of supplanting or replacing an existing model with a new one, he basically kept afloat the existing model, uh, sort of a petro-state kind of neoliberal model, a consumerist society, um, very much dependent on imports, while at the same time also trying to generate a kind of move away from consumerism by espousing a, a sort of a more socialist ethos, you know, moving away from uh, from material goods, et cetera, et cetera. So by trying to do both, what he was trying to do was create a you know a broader tent, uh, not necessarily politically of people who supported socialism, but of people who at least wouldn't be completely recalcitrant in their opposition to um, to policies that sought to generate greater improvements in people's lives, especially popular sectors. So I think that that was part of it. I think that um, there just wasn't enough money to go around to satisfy both the immediate needs of popular sectors who had long been left out, as well as sort of the emerging middle classes that um, that had new needs and, and Chavez wanted to sort of capture as part of his movement. But the other part of it too, um, and this is sort of more classic petrostate modeling, the fact is that, you know, in contrast to places like Saudi Arabia or Norway, right, where sometimes people compare them, Venezuela uh, at the time certainly was uh, was a very robust, vibrant democracy. And so people were debating positions and you know, they were articulated under these um, these political parties that tried to you know, seek power. And so as a result, you needed to needed to show what you could do with the money that you had. Right. And so that generated this kind of performative effect that um, because it was like a publicitary style of politics where there were very frequent elections, each electoral cycle required more infusion of cash in order to be able to stay in power, right? And that, so you, the kind of long-term planning that's required of these kind of long-term investments in the productive sector, they were not going to yield immediate results. So instead, what you have was this, this spectacular deployment of, of rents. Now, it also seems that uh, Chavez was a very skilled politician and Maduro less so. How much do the two personalities matter for this story? Oh, tremendously. And I think it matters in ways that are you know, not frequently captured. I mean, I think the general narrative, and this is a true narrative, is that you know Chavez was, was very charismatic and, and Maduro is sort of the opposite of that. That certainly is true. But I think the other part of it um, in terms of skill um, is that in part because Chavez was the leader of this movement, um, the kind of factionalism that had developed over time in terms of visions and schisms within Chavismo, represented by, say, like a military faction, which is where Chavez came from, um, a more civilian sort of trade unionist faction, which is where Maluro came from, a more grassroots faction, which which was where um, other sectors of, of his entourage and his government came from, that they were kind of always at odds. And yet, because Chavez was the one who would ultimately decide it, you know, which one would gain favor at any given moment, and because he had this sort of what we call portaviones, or sort of aircraft carrier effect, where he sort of um, you know, led everybody into, into from one victory to the other. He could m- sort of maneuver between those various positions. Maduro, in contrast, not only did he not have that charismatic quality, but he also represented one of these warring factions. And over time, as um, the crisis became worse in 2013, 2014, um, and the opposition, radical sectors of the opposition, saw their chance to um, to really kind of push Maduro and the government to to the brink. 
um, what that basically generated was um, uh, Maduro as a weakened president under a weakened structural context, having to rely much more on the military faction in order to stay afloat, uh, to, you know, to, uh, to repress opposition protests, um, and then increasingly to repress popular sector protests in the context of, um, you know, of worsening living conditions, right? So basically what you have now is even though Maduro came from the sort of civilian trade union faction, he has basically completely ceded uh, the most significant degree of power as a way to stay afloat to the military, which is um, you know, highly corrupt and it has been for a long time and is you know, very poorly seen by even popular sectors of the population who have previously supported Chavismo for, for the corruption that they engage in. Okay, now to the present. Uh, you've written that the opposition, although it uh, does attract some sympathy in the polls, has not been able to consolidate itself very effectively as a political force. Why is that, and, and where do you see this all going? Much of this goes back, again, to that early period of um, 1998-2004, when the opposition showed itself to not really believe in the things that it espoused, especially things like democracy, democratic principles, democratic procedures, etc. And so that really cost it a huge amount in terms of, um, of credibility and trust from the popular sectors that it absolutely needed to build a larger coalition beyond just elite and upper middle classes, right? And so it has long had to contend with the mistakes of its past without actually having to address them. And so even though, you know, after 2006, 2008, um, most of the opposition chose a more sort of um, electoral path to try to come back to power, there were still radical sectors within it that continued to resist that. Um, And that creates a sense, especially on the part of of, of popular sectors who, again, would otherwise be inclined um, in the context of severe crisis to support an alternative, it, it gives them pause. Which is why, to some extent, what's been interesting about this, this the, the latest candidacy of, of Henry Falcón as an opposition candidate in the upcoming presidential elections, is that he's actually somebody who came from within the ranks of Chavismo, um, became a very popular opposition governor that never quite gelled with the mainstream um, opposition precisely because he had a very social orientation in terms of his policies. He was always distrusted by sort of mainstream sectors of the opposition. And to some extent right now when um, he and somebody like him would have most opportunity to actually capture the imagination of popular sectors who are seeing themselves very, very battered, what he lacks, um, oddly enough, is the support of those mainstream opposition sectors, most of whom have boycotted the elections, right? So, you know, again and again, the opposition has been the victim of either its hubris or its sort of immediate sense that it needs to come back to power without any kind of plan in place for how to do so in the long term, right? It just always imagines that the situations will be favorable for it to come to power without actually doing the work of convincing the population that um, we are an alternative that needs your, your vote. How much of that is because it's, the opposition is rooted in the upper classes? I think a large part of it, uh, especially when you think about who um, you know, the loudest voices of the opposition have been, but it's also true that there are very powerful um, sectors of the opposition who um, come from, not from elite sectors, but from the old party machine of Acción Democrática, the Social Democratic Party that ruled Venezuela in the 40 years prior to, to Chavez coming to power. Uh, and so they have sort of deep, deep ties within popular sectors, but because they've aligned very closely and to some extent um, over the years have allowed the more lead sectors of the, uh, of the opposition to determine the agenda, again, they're seen with skepticism by precisely those um, sectors of the uh, electorate who would um, otherwise be inclined to, to support them, right? 
And I can understand why a historian would be re reluctant to predict the future. But what do you see happening here? Yeah, it's a very tragic situation. I think that uh, I think that Maduro will win the presidential elections fairly or unfairly. That will give him cover to try to remain in power regardless of what happens. Um, I think that right now he's just uh, continuing to rely on the possibility that oil prices will rise again. But the country is so leveraged in terms of its debt obligations and it's so strangle held by its inability to seek new creditors that, you know, to some kind of um, tragic effect, the, the exodus of, of, of people leaving Venezuela has been actually quite helpful for, for Maduro because it means that there are fewer people internally that he has to really account for. To me, what that all points to is a, is a worsening of the crisis, unfortunately. But maybe uh, the other part of it, too, is depending on how well this opposition candidate, Andre Falcón, does, that might create... Um, the opportunity for alternatives, um, maybe not in the short term, but in the medium term for for kind of switch over in government in a transitional way. Um, but the other factor, too, is just the, the pressure from the international community, um, which has been very dramatic and it seems to be growing. Right. And so to the extent that that more and more looks like regime change, that is certainly also a possibility as, as Maduro's position grows weaker. That was Alejandro Velasco, who teaches Latin American history at NYU. He's also editor of NACLA's report on the Americas. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the Boré from Bach's English Suite No. 1, performed by Angela Hewitt. Next, the racist origins of the field of political science. Curiously, the social sciences often have a reputation in the mainstream and on the right for being hotbeds of left-wing radicalism, which is funny given their origins in efforts to control troublesome populations like the descendants of slaves and immigrants from places other than northern and western Europe. Political science is one of those fields. In her new book, Race and the Making of American Political Science, from the University of Pennsylvania Press, Jessica Blatt explores that now largely forgotten history, a history that sometimes makes a reappearance in modern pseudoscientific form. Jessica Blatt is an associate professor of political science at Marymount Manhattan College. It uh, struck me as I was reading a book that, uh, given my, some of my current obsessions, that political science was born in its modern form roughly at the same time that WASPs came to consciousness as an ethnic group. They were concerned about all the, the uh, immigrants from disreputable corners of Europe and wanted to do something about it. So uh, political science emerged in a modern form, very concerned about race and ethnicity and all that, right? Who are the guys who put this together? What was, what was worrying them? The rise of the modern university really falls into that moment, right? I mean, several historians link that to a kind of set of post-Civil War Gilded Age anxieties about the erosion of hierarchies and the erosion of various forms of social authority, right? So that there was this crisis of authority in the post-Civil War era, according to a number of historians of education. And 
the formation of the universities and the rise of the social sciences comes out of attempts by kind of northeastern gentry to solidify their cultural authority that felt threatened. Threatened by? Threatened by immigration, threatened by disorder, threatened by economic fluctuations, threatened by labor unrest, you know, by urbanization, just by a whole kind of, the whole ferment of the post-Civil War era. Now, as I recall, the WASPs' anxieties were driven mostly by immigration and uh, Jews, <laughs> whereas uh, a lot of these early political scientists are also obsessed with uh, the black population and mm-hmm. the problems of Reconstruction. So mm-hmm. how, how did Reconstruction figure into their imagination? For someone like John Burgess, who was the kind of founding father of American political science, it figures very biographically. He was from Tennessee. He fought in the Civil War. He was from a slaveholding Unionist family. And he saw the Civil War essentially as a failure of political theory. He thought that all of these kinds of illusions about social compacts and natural inequality had left the American political system unable to deal with the reality of having a lower race in his mind in the, in the mix. And that because These guys of that, were not concerned to euphemize this. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Burgess was responsible for some of the most scurrilous descriptions of Reconstruction as, you know, sort of the, the rule of the ignorant barbarian, right? There was no idea that you had to have lip service to something called equality. And in fact, they kind of staked their claims to science on the rejection of philosophical speculative ideas about natural equality. Right? The, the organization of political science as a science was replacing this kind of philosophical abstraction with what Burgess called ethnological facts, right? that you really had to understand that the real basis of politics was in kind of national character, and national character was linked to race, and you had to create a political system that could reflect that. Right, So because the kind of tragic mistake of the Civil War was that, as he put it, you know, this kind of Southern planters couldn't kind of get past their own self-interest and the Northern abolitionists couldn't get past their attachment to fanatical ideals and kind of come up with some sort of settlement, uh, that that resulted in this explosion of the Civil War. And then again, this sort of fanatical, as he put it, abolitionist tendency creates reconstruction which puts the, the U.S. in this kind of untenable position, which he sees as you know, having to treat lower races as an equal part of the polity. And at this point, uh, the universities were basically finishing schools for rich guys, mm-hmm. right? So, and, or, or theological seminaries. Right, so how, how did uh, the rise of political scientists, uh, science go along with uh, the creation of the modern university? You got doctoral programs. You didn't have those before. Up until then, to get a doctorate in anything... In really pretty much anything except the natural sciences, you needed to go to Europe. Right? So the idea was we'll create these homegrown institutions where we will certify communities of authority and create certified knowledge. Right, so then how did uh, this early field of political science propose to deal with all these difficult populations, uh, the descendants of slaves and all these troublesome immigrants from uh, the disreputable corners of Europe? Burgess's solution... Um, and again, this is the sort of founding figure from 1880. Burgess's solution was immigration restriction, ethnic cleansing, and authoritarianism. 
He believed that, you know, some populations could conceivably be assimilated to the development of American liberty, which he saw as linked inextricably to the racial characteristics of the Anglo-Saxons. But he also thought that many could not. Um, so that the, he, he talked about deportation as a possibility. He talked about immigration restriction. Interestingly, he was opposed to colonial expansion. Right? He did not think the American empire should extend past the continent because it would add these racial elements, even though he did think that eventually the, the white man should rule the whole earth. Right? He did not think that the American political system as it was, was ready to do that. It needed to uh, achieve its full nationality first. Yeah, this is as the U.S. was having its first experience with colonialism in the Philippines. Exactly, the Philippines and Cuba, the Spanish-American War. Some of them were into managing the empire. uh, Right, most political scientists at this point were against it, right? It's still a very small community of this kind of organized political science. It's really based in Columbia and, and Johns Hopkins. It hasn't spread As it spreads and kind of after the turn of the century, after the Spanish-American War kind of creates these facts on the ground, then you get a group, a sort of younger group of people led by someone like Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, Burgess was pushed aside, I wouldn't say quickly, but... Pretty quickly. Succeeded. Yeah, yeah. He, He was very, very influential in his moment and then is pretty much pushed aside by a kind of more uh, reform managerial progressive perspective, right? He really is a reactionary in kind of every sense. He did not believe in democracy. He thought that judges should rule, right? Is it he who had that phrase about uh, the aristocracy that robe? No, that was... was, That's him. It struck me how the similarities between that and a lot of modern liberal attitudes. Like, they just Mm -hmm. love the courts and they don't trust the mob. Right. They want expert rule. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But it's not a sort of technocratic... uh, image the way that the current one is, or the way that a lot of the kind of successor political scientists would have conceived it, right? For him, the reason that judges needed to rule was because the American Constitution was the highest expression of the development of reason <laughs> to date, right? He's a Hegelian. So that the function of the, of the judge was to hew to this framework and to avoid any kind of eruptions of democratic will into the development of of the legal system. Another figure, uh, very substantial in both uh, um, the academic worlds and the the real worlds of politics, Woodrow Wilson Mm -hmm. plays an important role in this. Noxious fellow in many ways. Yes. Although uh, (laughs) revered by a lot of liberals. Mm -hmm. First of all, what was Wilson's role uh, in the evolution of academic political science? Well, Wilson is really important. Um, He kind of leads the generation that succeeds Burgess. And that generation kind of does two things, right? First, it rejects the the German Hegelian apparatus that Burgess had constructed and contained political science within, right? They took a much more kind of practical attitude. And And I take it by then... The discipline had grown beyond these two initial. Right. This is when this is when the discipline starts growing. You start getting in 1903. You get the American Political Science Association, which is a way of organizing um, kind of all of the graduates of these first two departments that have gone off and are now teaching uh, in all different parts of the country. Need a way to to organize themselves and sort out uh, who's in charge, right? And when they do that, they do so in a way that kind of claims a a new attitude toward American politics, right? Again, Burgess's attitude is fundamentally conservative. 
these guys are conservative too, but they're pragmatic conservatives. They think the world is changing. We need to adapt to those changes and we need to do so in this kind of scientific manner. The topic of lynching comes up uh, in your book and uh, these guys seem to blame lynching on its victims, right? Yes, it's really, it took me, I had to read a lot of that stuff a few times to understand what they were actually saying because it's so bizarre. But yes, absolutely. The, the, the reason that you have lynching is because you have a legal system that is inappropriate to governing unequal races, right? You have a legal system that tries to treat everybody equally. You can't do that, so therefore you get lynching. And that the only way to solve the problem of lynching would either be to have a legal system that discriminates between, uh, you know, treats whites differently than blacks, and in some cases immigrants, or keep them out. I'm speaking with Jessica Blatt, author of Race and the Making of American Political Science, just out from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Back to Wilson. So what, what, what's, what was his contribution to the field? Well, his contribution to the field was, for one, to kind of criticize Burgess, right? He, he kills the father, as it were. So he puts a much more kind of practical spin on things, right? He's, Burgess's theory is ultimately historicist. It's ultimately about kind of tracing this through line of development of the, of the Anglo-Saxon germ of Teutonic liberty uh, through history, right, to see how it develops and to kind of remain faithful to its course. Someone like Wilson doesn't want to just kind of obey history, or right? he wants to make history, um, and he thinks that political scientists should be able to do that. He thinks that the world has changed a lot and that you can't kind of rely on the old formulas. You have to to adapt to it in these new ways. So part of what he does is kind of blast away at the paradigm of state theory that, that Burgess has created, which is this kind of Hegelian, Germanic, developmental paradigm. Um, so that's part of his work. And then the other part of his work is to kind of elaborate this new idea that in order to, and this is something I, I get really from Stephen Skoranek, in order to kind of recuperate and hang on to these old values of wasp, things like wasp authority, right? You actually have to revolutionize the system. That you can't. That it's not just hanging on to the old system um, and kind of recognizing how it really should work, but you actually have to create a new system. Uh, and one of them, one of those, the things that you have to do is again differentiate between whites and blacks, and and between colonized people and colonizers. Wilson, uh, on one hand, sympathized with the Klan, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, has this reputation as a great reformer. And this is how you reconcile those Right. Things. It was reform in the service of existing hierarchies. So what did that mean as Wilson made the transition from uh, um, being an academic to being a politician at the highest level? I mean, you can see it in you know, the structure of the League of Nations, right, in the mandate system. But now he's got this reputation as being some sort of prissy internationalist, right? But uh, it was a lot more complicated. Right. I mean, well, what he creates is a system of international hierarchy and, and separate development, right? The idea is, you know, this, this idea of self-determination is really related to the idea of racial, uh, of racial difference, right? That different races have different destinies and they have to be allowed to work out their destinies on their own. Of course, some are more capable of doing it than others, so some need to do so in this kind of tutelary. No, it has to do so in this way in which they are kind of helped along by uh, a superior power and under the influence of a superior power where others, of course, um, can do so independently. 
Now, the, the 20s were a period of immigration restriction. Uh, did these guys have any contribution? These early political scientists contribute to this? The early ones, I mean, they certainly subscribe to a lot of the same theories that the immigration restrictionists put forward. You know, Burgess thought, and many of them thought you could not govern a heterogeneous population. Right? But what's interesting in the 20s is the political scientists who kind of latch on to the race science around immigration restriction. The period of eugenics and all that. The period of eugenics, right? Intelligence testing, right? You have the army intelligence tests during World War One, which produce all of this kind of, you know, all these nice numbers and graphs about the population that on the one hand show, you know, all the kinds of racial disparities that the testers expected to find. Um, they also show you know, class disparities. They show that the, the officers are much smarter than everyone else, um, although every, not, nobody's too smart. Well, it's interesting. There are some anomalies. Though, that immigrants who'd been here longer scored higher yes. than those who were just fresh off the boat. Right. And that didn't challenge the theory, though. It challenged it a little, right? There's, a, there's you know, some hesitance about this, but then they decide, well, you know, it must be that we got the better immigrants first. Transport is cheaper, and there's already people here. Now the dregs are sort of coming along, right? So they do, in the, in the kind of write-ups of the test, they do entertain the idea that maybe there are some uh, cultural uh, determinants of these results, but they ultimately reject it. A similar one is that African-Americans in the North score better than African-Americans in the South. The obvious reason is because they're getting more education and they're more prosperous and they're less sort of horrifically oppressed. Uh, but the explanation that the testers come up with is that smarter black people move north because conditions are better up there. So it is actually about inborn intelligence, right? The political scientists in the 1920s who latch on to all of this aren't necessarily committed to immigration restriction as an end in itself. For some of them, it might have been a bonus, but they were really interested in this idea that race scientists were producing this kind of scientific knowledge about populations that was testable and objective and resulted in numbers and graphs. And around this time in the 20s, uh, we also saw the emergence of uh, philanthropic organizations that were shaping Mm -hmm. uh, the course of social science research. The Mm -hmm. Social Science Research Council, uh, for example, kind of a laundering operation for Rockefeller money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what was their role in all that? There's a couple of big figures uh, in, in, in each period. And Charles Merriam is kind of the John W. Burgess of the 1920s. He's the sort of the, the field is bigger, so you can't dominate it quite as thoroughly, but he is the kind of towering figure in political science in the 1920s. He recognizes that if political scientists want the kind of authority that they have been trying to get all along, and, and throughout I see them recurring to race as a source of scientific authority, right? Um, race is the principle of historical development for Burgess. Ethnographic realities are the thing that makes natural rights theory untenable according to people like Wilson, right? So this idea that you can anchor political judgment to natural reality is very much at play every time they every time race kind of enters. But in the 1920s, the idea that you can ratify your knowledge using scientific and technical means is really important because political scientists want in on this money that is now coming into the social science. Foundations start off doing mostly kind of social service type work and funding natural science and medicine, right? In the 1920s, there starts to be um, some interest in what, what gets called social engineering, particularly through race research, 
we can place immigration, the question of immigration on objective ground is something that gets said in, in meetings, right? So they're starting to put money into this kind of research about how policy should be made. Um, and political scientists are sort of like, well, we're, that's our territory. We want in on that. So they get very interested in the way that money is flowing to research about migration and immigration. And most of it is going to people like Robert Yerkes, who was the mastermind of the intelligence tests and a big proponent of immigration restriction. Also famous as a primatologist, Yes, right? he started off yeah. as a primatologist. There's a wonderful book by Donna Haraway about his primate work um, and, and the way it relates to his ideas about race and about, and about gender and about intelligence and all that stuff. In this moment, right, they had the intelligence testing, they had the army tests, a ton of money went into uh, psychometrics and intelligence research, race science of all kinds. But after the war, there's no more justification for this research. So they need a new way to justify it. And they say, oh, we're going we're gonna to study immigration. We're going to help you make decisions about immigration policy. A bunch of foundation money starts flowing in that direction. And Charles Merriam sort of sees that this is going on and tries to get political science into those funding streams. You're doing policy-relevant research. We want to do policy-relevant research. This is the National Research Council that is overseeing this, which is, it had originally been chartered by the National Academy of Sciences to organize science for military preparedness in the onset of World War I. Then afterwards, they just they want to reorganize to keep funding and organizing science for important military purposes, not important uh, national purposes. Charles Merriam thinks political science should be part of the National Research Council. He organizes a bunch of leaders in social science associations, uh, the American Political Science Association, the American Sociological Association, to uh, band together to form what he calls the SRC at the time, that is going to collaborate with the NRC and eventually hopefully be uh, absorbed into the NRC. Um, and the way that he chooses to do it is to try and collaborate with this migration committee that Yerkes funds. And so he tries to get political scientists into this very, frankly, hardline, racist, immigration restrictionist set of efforts, partly to pick up on the funding, but also partly because they are really interested in the methods. Right? The idea that you can see below kind of the confusing ferment of political life and find out people's real capacities and traits through things like intelligence testing is really intriguing. So Merriam writes to Yerkes and writes to all these psychometricians to try and get them to develop tests for good citizenship. Someone like Harold Laswell, his student, who becomes probably the most important uh, American social scientists of the mid-century essentially founds political psychology, does similar things, trying to use psychological methods to find out who's going to be a radical. The psychopathology of radicalism is, is how he begins his career. So this, there's this idea that the kinds of science that race scientists are doing can reveal traits about politics as well. Eventually, the SRC fails at getting into the NRC. They don't, the, the National Academy of Sciences does not think that anything that the political scientists or the social scientists are bringing to the table is really worth funding. But through the process of trying to get in and through working with these race scientists, Charles Merriam makes an alliance with a guy called Beardsley Rummel, who was running a Rockefeller Foundation. 
and becomes the principal patron of what then becomes the SSRC. Right, so there's this kind of genealogical link to race science, which is really interesting. So Rommel is funding the Migration Committee, um, and he, he tries to help Miriam get into the NRC. It doesn't work. Uh, but then they eventually end up founding this independent organization. Finally, you begin the book by recounting these efforts by current political scientists to find like genetic mm-hmm. roots of our political thinking and behavior, mm-hmm. which you know is different from the history you're describing of a century ago. But as you point out, there, there's this effort by the discipline to locate po- politics outside of politics, of politics and history, right? <laughs> right? They're trying to find some kind of ground right. to it that has nothing to do with social life, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what does that tell us about the current state of the discipline? I think it says a lot of things about the current state of the discipline. This is research, and it started really kind of coming out in earnest uh, about a decade ago, on or a little more than a decade ago. Um, and it's usually collaborations between you know molecular biologists and uh, political scientists to try and find genes for things like liberalism, conservatism, voting. My favorite one is Machiavellianism. <laughs> Apparently there's a gene for that. And it's so patently absurd in a whole bunch of ways, right? Simply that, you know, we don't we barely understand the genetic mechanisms behind disease and pathology, right? The idea that we can understand the genetic mechanisms between behind, you know, complex behavioral traits we're nowhere near being able to do that. But somehow the faith that this must be the way things work overcomes that skepticism. It's probably possible that some people uh, might have some underlying physiological traits that are related to some kind of genetic things that might cause them to react aggressively in certain situations, for example, right? But the number of things that would have to mediate between that genetic basis and any, you know, identifiable political results are, is so infinite as to render that completely meaningless. Many different personalities can exist in many different political milieu and how that's going to be expressed politically is, depends on a, a gazillion things, right? So the fact that we can seriously entertain the idea that there is a gene for being liberal or a gene for being conservative or, a, you know, a gene for being scheming, (laughs) speaks to the kind of intensity of desire for uh, a basis for doing politics or understanding politics that isn't, doesn't actually deal with things like class conflict or, you know, fundamental, fundamentally clashing interests of some kind, right? We really, really seem to want that very badly. And it keeps coming back in one form or another, this idea that politics is not about anything that we might conventionally understand as political, um, that it is about uh, a sort of set of kind of natural processes that can be managed with enough knowledge, right? So it really is about managing the unruly masses. That was Jessica Blatt, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marymount Manhattan College and author of Race and the Making of American Political Science, just out from the University of Pennsylvania Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out there's a bit of I Believe by Buzzcocks. No definite article, just like Messiah and Goethe Demerung. Till next week, bye. When I pause on my sister, my tape and twist them into shape.